Welcome to another episode of the Cheeky Natives. Um, I really love, like, I, I keep talking about, like, how um, the pandemic has sort of opened us up to how, like, we can use, like, uh, different means to be in conversation with each other. And I'm so grateful that, like, even though we're, like, kind of getting back to normal, we're still maintaining the fact that we can co- connect across continents. So I'm really excited that, like, we have an opportunity to speak to, like, some of our favorite authors. Um, but, you know, I'm with my fave, Dr. A. Hey, Dr. A. Hey, good evening everybody I'm so excited for today's podcast I know I say this on every single podcast But it's because I'm genuinely excited um, But today I'm, I'm extra excited And I have the supreme pleasure Of introducing our guest today Who is Wilson Shire A Somali-born writer And poet born in Nairobi And raised in London She's written two chapbooks Teaching my mother how to give birth And her blue body She was awarded the inaugural Brunel International African Poetry Prize and served as the first Young Poet Laureate of London. She's the youngest member of the Royal Society of Literature and is included in the Penguin Modern Poets series. Shire wrote the poetry for the Peabody award-winning visual album, Lemonade, and Disney film Black is King in collaboration with Beyonce Knowles Carter. She also wrote the short film Brave Girl Rising, highlighting the voices and faces of Somali girls in Africa's largest refugee camp. Wilson lives in Los Angeles with her husband, and two children bless the daughter raised by a voice in her head is her first full collection and she is our guest today on the cheeky natives welcome hello 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 thank you guys for having me so much i'm so excited can we talk about the titles of your books right so i i keep thinking about teaching uh, uh, teaching my mother how to give birth, right? And te- um, to thinking about bless the daughter raised by a voice in her head. And just like how these the chapbook and this first time full poetry collection are in conversation with each other. But I'm interested in titles and like um, like how titles tell a story. So I wanted to speak a little bit about like, you know, those particular two titles, but what titles mean to you? Yeah, well, I've always, I've always loved long titles. I remember um, coming across a collection of short stories in a bookshop and the title was um, No One Belongs Here More Than You. And it was a a collection of short stories by Miranda July. And I'd never heard of her until that moment. And my mind blew open. But I've always loved long titles. I remember even a a film that I just went blind into watching because I liked the title. And it was called uh, A Guide to Recognizing Your Saints. And I feel like titles can be like a poem within itself, like a small snapshot. Well, sometimes I do go for just a simple uh, title, but sometimes I do like, I feel like the introduction, it's almost like it's the name of the poem. And, um, and the longer it is, sometimes the more of a story that there is. Um, but I just, I'm drawn to that kind of stuff anyway. <laughs> I, I wanted to speak a little bit about how the book opens. Um, so I think of extreme girlhood um, and I think of the quotes by Ntozaki Shange that everybody likes and I feel like has almost become weaponized. You know, to be black, woman and alive is a metaphysical condition I haven't quite yet conquered, right? And everybody's like, yes, yes, black girl, you can do it. Except that sometimes you really can't. Um, and for me, I think to be black, woman and alive is to exist in a constant state of precarity. Um, 
and maybe that is the metaphysical state of being, right? It's to be in this constant state of, of precarity. But there is a statement that you make by opening with that poem that I'm really interested in, um, you know, just in continuation with the title. But I wanted us to speak about why you chose to particularly open with that in the collection of poems. Um, well, actually, you know, at first I was playing around with the title of, for the full collection to be Extreme Girlhood. And actually, <laughs> I told, I ran it past one person uh, who happened to be a, a, a white colleague. And she said, oh, like girls in the hood. I was like, oh, no, <laughs> no, that is kind of, but not wasn't what I was going for. And actually hadn't thought of at all, even though I'm a big fan of the film Boys in the Hood. That wasn't what I was thinking of at all. And so I did also, you know, so actually that links into it entirely how um, how um, a, a lot of our childhoods we're not allowed to have, we're not allowed to experience um, adultified from such an early age, um, over-sexualized, um, given too much responsibility, parentified, um, and also like vilified and made to be much more scary, never allowed that innocence or that purity because um, a lot of black children aren't allowed to exist as black children. And we have so many examples of that that are like devastating constantly. So for me, speaking specifically about extreme girlhood, um, poetry for me was always a means to understand what was going on around me and to understand myself. And so very early on, it dawned on me that it was for some reason, or in my particular family, kind of a wicked thing to be a girl, to be born a girl child, and also a thing of disappointment. And there was a frivolity that was connected to what it meant to be girl. And for me, growing up also, just not fitting specific beauty ideals. And, um, and also, I ended up just genuinely resisting them as well. And so for me, it this book is almost like um, a loop the, the last poem and the, the the first poem it's almost like the endless cycle of just being a girl and what that means but for me I am hoping to highlight that we can be triumphant and that we can be rebellious and that we can be very strong and that there is um, power in the transformative nature of being able to explore your trauma and then make something good of it and share it with others so that they're able to do the same. And hopefully awesome. making us better people, I hope. <laughs> I, I love that you've spoken about empathizing <clears throat> girlhood, right? Because I feel like for black girls, that's something we're often denied. So you go from you go from birth and and the disappointments for many people around having a daughter and what that means for progeny etc and then you are meant to just be this adult who earns their place in the home so you have to be super responsible you must be the eldest African daughter and there are all of these responsibilities and then you move to being somebody's wife and there is no space for you to ever explore what it means to just be to just be a girl to be frivolous to be a child there's no space for that and I, I love that that we're having this discussion around like girlhood. What does it mean to be to be a black girl, right? Without being without being tired or whatever is thought of. Um, 
there's just so much just like you are just not allowed to just be like you must be tired from working right and constantly doing the labor be it physical or emotional anyway I could go on about this because well <laughs> I just I, wanted to speak a little bit about the 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 idea of of um while we're on while we're talking about titles is to speak about how some of your poems are interestingly titled and the, and the repetition of bliss right so we think of like I think of blessings like I'm blessing you, um, almost as like a, a benediction, as a prayer, as this. And you, you then use blessing in a very interesting context. And I'm interested in that because I'm thinking of the poem where you bless the Kumaya. And I had to look, I may be pronouncing it wrong, but I was no, like, you- okay, okay, Wilson is blessing the Kumaya, let's go. Um, <laughs> while we speak on titles, I just wanted to think around why there is the repetition of blessing, why you've used the act of blessing in such a particular, almost contradictory way. Mm. Well, yeah, I just, I definitely had the very intentional thought of blessing um, the unblessed or the ones that are usually left out of blessings or cursed specifically for the simple act of living. And for me, poetry was always a way of being able to like uh, take it all back, take back your memories and interrogate them from another perspective and transform it into something else and make yourself um, um, some, the hero in your own story. Just the, what your imagination is able to do for you in the act of storytelling can be actually quite merciful and quite healing. And so it was really important for me um, to... Oh. I forgot what your question was and I started talking about random... Am I still on the same thread? No, you oh. are. You really are. You're talking about like how um, you're thinking about unblessing. and the Unblessing, yes, that's it. Um, sorry. Um, no, because it's something I think about a lot. I think about this idea of um, 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 like suffering in vain. And when people are uh, know of your suffering, then in, in some way you're considered a martyr or a saint. But for all those that go, and I think um, uh, one of my most important, for me, one of the most important poems in the book for me personally um, is a poem for Victoria, Victoria and Ilian. And I think that's a perfect example of um, somebody who was forgotten and was neglected and was abandoned and overlooked specifically because she was a young black girl and specifically because it just which wasn't no one cared and so for me to and, okay so to me victoria symbolizes what happens when everyone looks the other way and children are put in harm's way um, but this is the most evil, most depraved version of it. And still that we forget. And it happens all the time, over and over and over again. There'll be mm-hmm. a documentary here, there'll be a documentary there, but nothing ever really truly changes. And we don't actually care about our children as a society worldwide. They just keep continuously being the most um, abused and the most, um, but I don't want to get into a long tirade. I think we're all against child abuse in this conversation right now. (laughs) So um, um, for me, it was really important to constantly come back to this idea of um, thinking of her in heaven, thinking of her surrounded by mothers and completely in bliss and experiencing euphoria and ecstasy and taking something that was so horrific and giving her 
um, another way to exist without ignoring everything that she went through and giving everybody who reads the poem an opportunity to also bless her and to read about it and to mm-hmm. um, honor her. And she's memorialized. So it was that was important for me. And I hope I can do more of that. Mm. I, I'm interested in the last stanza of two poems because I think they're like quite interesting. So the first is Extreme Gohood, right? Where you say, Mama, I made it out of your home alive, raised by the voices in my head, right? Which connects quite um, beautifully to the title of the poem, right? But then you also think about Bless the Ugly Child, right? And we think about like, honestly, like beauty standards are really weird. And like how like, for some of us, when we think about beauty standards, you you think about like you've grown up being the ugly child and then all of a sudden, suddenly in your adulthood, everyone is like, oh my gosh, you're so beautiful. But because you've been socialized to believe that you are not uh, uh, fit to the ideal standards, you're not able to accept that you are beautiful. Uh, but the last stanza of, of, of bless you, the, um, your ugly daughter, you say, but God doesn't, she wear the world well, right? Uh, and it's so interesting to think about that, right? Like just like how socialization, I made it out because of uh, the voices raised in my head and but God doesn't you wear the world well, that in many instances, it's like even the beauty standards, you know, as you grow older, it's like, it's that, it's this idea of like uh, wearing the world well, but also thinking like there's some instances in which you had to remother yourself, right? So uh, I think about like the teaching um, my mother how to give birth. And just in many instances, you had to be the one, the one that said to yourself or as many girl children do, it's just like, okay, I have a complex relationship with the with, with this um, maternal figure, but I I, I got to hold up. So I'm interested to think about that, right? The idea of like mother daughter relationships, because I think a lot of your work explores that, and I, I'm interested to find out your thoughts about like these complex relationship between mothers and daughters, because often people don't want to delve deeper into what they mean for the socialization of women who be for of young girls who become women and how that that impacts their relationship with the world. Mm. I think um, it's very taboo to in, across all our uh, across many cultures to say anything of uh, that's even remotely um, um, unflattering about your mother. She's supposed to be the saint. She is supposed to be um, perfect. And uh, I, you know, g- growing up Muslim. Islam teaches you that after God, it's your mother. As a child, I always wondered though, because there were always, I always saw examples of wicked mothers. Like I actually would see clear examples of child abuse as a child and think, well, I think there are some people out here that don't really love their children. So what does that mean? And so um, what does that rejection coming from a mother figure what does that do to a child? And so what does that do to the psyche and what kind of adult does it create? So naturally, this leads me to serial killing. And I realized that most of these serial killers taking, delving into their childhood, m- like honestly, majority of them despise their mothers. Something truly awful either happens from their mother or they just felt like kind of cast away. And so it's really interesting what the mother wound, as it's called, is able to do to people. And I think it's something that's overlooked because it's too common. Everyone has a mother. Okay. Some people, mothers, 
they never get to meet. Some people's mothers um, pass away and some people's mothers sell them. So it's like the, it runs the gamut of, the, you know, every Mother's Day, there are lots of people who have very, very complicated feelings when that day comes around because um, not everybody has a simple relationship. For me, I always was very aware of the fact that my mother didn't really have much of a maternal like bond with her children. But then as I grew older, I started to think about the fact that, you know, she didn't really have much of a choice in family planning. If she had, maybe she would have chosen to be child free, which is completely fine. But because she was forced into that situation on some level, um, and we are all forced into this planet once we are thrusted out of our mothers, we don't have a choice but to just get on with it. And so for me, the way I cope, because I have a deep respect, admiration, and like love affair really with my mother. Like I'm in awe of her because she's like, first of all, so beautiful. I know that's kind of vapid and shallow to be referencing, but when from a young age you see your mother as like somebody on the TV, I always, I didn't have to, uh, what well, I still did, but I didn't have to continuously go outside of the home to see what beauty meant. She was a representation of like almost movie star beauty. But along with that came the feeling of insignificance in comparison and also having to live up to this um, high femme ideal of femininity and beauty. But also that leads into what, what you were mentioning about feeling ugly. And um, what it means, I grew up with different, um, I grew up type four in a household full of type two to type three. So it was like I was adopted and I felt that I had to be really militant about it because it seemed to be the, um, the only thing that made me like genuinely visibly black. And so it made me politically who I am too. So I'm so thankful for that feeling of being outcast or the black sheep um, and not fitting certain ideals, including growing up being a fat child my whole entire life and what that means and the kind of comments that you hear. Um, and I remember with my cousins who were dark skinned and then they would be constantly mocked for it from, from, a, from another family member who was the same um, skin color as them. And so I would just remember just really being aware of the fact that not only were our bonds as girls being eroded between the comparison that was forced upon each other to meet beauty ideals, but also just how unfair it was. They would like, I would sometimes um, um, just remember me and my cousins just being in a room and just crying about how ugly we were. <laughs> kind of ridiculous, but it wasn't really about the way you looked, but it was about the way you felt. After mm. a while you get you keep being told something and it actually affects you so for me right now as an adult I do have body dysmorphia and I do have eating disorders and that's a direct result of that feeling ugly so it truly doesn't matter if you eventually look the way you've always wanted to look or if a million people tell you you're beautiful or you even start to think oh I'm kind of cute it's the way you feel inside and it's that child mm -hmm. version of you that's like forever mm -hmm. messed up that you're work I'm working through in the poem and I actually have come quite far so I think it's working so speaking about about you know that that coming from thinking of the poem filial cannibalism 
um, just in thinking of this theme around around mothers. And uh, I'm just going to read a little bit from it. And so it says, from time to time, mothers in the wild devour their young, an appetite born out of pure, bright need. Occasionally, mothers from ordinary homes, much like our own, feed on the viscid shame their daughters are forced to secrete from glands formed in the favor of men. And... So Lutlakonolo is having a Yubikani, this is the, the this is the audio version of snapping your fingers. But but I I feel I have an alternative take on, on the conversation, and that's just because I feel like having watched your your poetry evolve, because I'm a I'm a Tumblr girl, so I'm exposing my age. I, I'm a Tumblr, I'm a Wilson Shire Tumblr, Tumblr girl from back in the day. So those who know know what I'm talking about. Um <laughs> But, but there's an evolution in the way in which I think you write about your mother that speaks a lot about the ways in which we see you develop an empathy um, and an understanding, right? And I think that so much of that is also born from experiencing particular things in your life, right? So be it experiencing motherhood um, and then making sense of the things that happen as a mother, there is a particular sense of empathy that we see develop in your writing. And... Interestingly enough, I found that this poem was an example of that, um, which, which for me is just, you know, filial cannibalism, motherhood, cool. And I wanted to speak <laughs> about the ways in which poetry has been a way to make sense of the things that happen to you, but also of why the people in your life are the way that they are. Exactly, exactly. I think it w- was, that's all it really ever was. And so... Um, I was very, um, I was the eldest and um, home a, a lot, just looking after the kids. And it was just me and my imagination to get up stuff and to find, um, to, to, to forge a way forward. And it was really, really fun. Um, but the biggest thing that giving birth gave me is complete empathy and understanding, but also completely take me back to being that child and feeling myself completely the opposite of how my mother felt so having to mother my sisters and mother my brother and mother myself instilled in me from a very very young age massive massive maternal instinct which I'm so grateful for now that I am a mother but the moment I felt that and the moment I held my child, I realized that my mother never felt that. And so it was both understanding that and also grieving that feeling fully what it could have been. So it was both eye, completely eye-opening, but then with everything that I was realizing, it was some of the most painful times as well because I could feel this bond with this child that I knew my mother just didn't have with any of her children. And it is what it is. We never get to really truly discuss it because it's taboo. Mothers and women are judged much harsher. Um, It's almost as if it goes back to this thing about Eve, if a a mother was to reject her child or not feel it. I mean, uh, it, it was the second I had a child, I realized, what if my mom just had postpartum depression that just went unchecked and she's just never, like, I, I have so much privilege compared to her. 
and and she afforded that to me she is she lived that life so that I could have all this access and to find the language for what she struggled with and to make so to make sure I also don't struggle with it so it was a gift and so all of it ultimately comes back to love so that's forgiveness and it can only come through um like really truly interrogating what happened what happened to her when she was a child what happened to the people that raised her and what was society like understand like what is going on it's not just about you like it seems like most of the people on planet earth have terrible childhoods and then so therefore that's why planet earth is pretty terrible (laughs) so um and and it also links back to what I was saying earlier about children. So it's you know uh, people spend their whole lives in therapy trying to figure out what happened. What happened was it was shit. It was terrible and it made you feel crap about yourself. So what we're we gonna do now? I've decided to do poetry. Everybody <laughs> can find something, <laughs> and we can genuinely make other people feel better. And hopefully the children will then grow up a little bit happier, and then Earth will get less ghetto. Well, yeah, that's what I'm looking forward to. That Earth will get less ghetto. May I ask you to read the last stanza of Midnight in the Foreign Food Aisle? Absolutely. This may be Little Honolulu's favorite poem in the whole book. I just want to put it on. Perhaps you should read the whole poem. Like, I just think. (laughs) No problem. No problem. And I feel so. Um, honored thank you for asking me all right so i'll dedicate this to you then midnight in the foreign food aisle dear uncle everything you love foreign or are you foreign to everything you love we're all animals and the body wants what it wants trust me i know the blonde said come in love take off your coat What do you want to drink? Love is not haram, but after years of fucking women who are unable to pronounce your name, you find yourself totally alone in the foreign food aisle beside the turmeric and saffron, remembering your mother's warm, dark hands, prostrating in front of the halal meat praying in a language you haven't used in years. Listen, this poem <laughs> destroyed me. <laughs> I think it, it destroyed me because it, 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 I think there's a lot of um, grief that takes place in, in the book. In, in, a, in a really literal sense, right, we, we think about grief as in someone may have passed away and we're grieving. But I think what Midnight in the Foreign Food Isle does, it, it speaks about a different type of grief and a grief that uh, I think your work has done a lot um, exploration of, right? So the grief of like, of statehood, right? And the grief of like, namehood, right? And the grief of like, just community and family and like, home, you know, and 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 this for me was like, oh my gosh, like, what a mind to 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 just pack so much of grief in one poem, right? So you think about like 
uh, after years of fucking women who are unable to pronounce your name, right? And how important it is for us as Black people, particularly, to have our names pronounced properly, right? And you find yourself totally alone in a foreign food aisle. So you also speak about that separation, the grief of home, of being a refugee in another country, right? And you speak about the um, praying in a language you haven't used in years. So the, even the grief of, 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 of language. And I wanted to speak a little bit about that, right? So just the exploration of the various types of grief that you do in the book, but more importantly about like statelessness and what it does for human connection. Mm, mm. Oh man, yeah, it's... Um... I, I was always, so, so, so my dad was a journalist, right? And but so um, he was um, a very hardworking, very successful journalist, specifically focused on like corruption um, across Africa. And when the war broke up, broke out in Somalia, when the war broke out in Somalia, um, he was still selling the newspaper and he was selling it underground. And there were times that it was being sold uh, like in, in, by like um, refugees in different countries across the Gulf and other parts of Africa um, for like $100 per like one um, newspaper. And so he was really thriving and had like a, fu- a rich future ahead of him, worked really, really hard, grew up pastoral, like grew up looking at uh, herding camels and got himself through to university went to Russia, uh, studied all of the random places, experienced all kinds of wild, wild things to finally make a life for himself and then everything for it to fall apart. So being raised by somebody who knows so much, but then also is experiencing um, being invisibilized in real time, and that's your father, and um, the, the life of being a refugee, in Europe, in the UK, in the 90s, was one where you were lucky to get away with dignity or to have any integrity. It was trying, you know, everything was going to beat it out of So he grew up, he's raised us up. Me and my brother, he raised us. Um, this is before my mum and dad broke up. Um, I was around seven when they divorced. But before that, so for the first seven years of my life, I grew up in a house. And actually, after they split, she still kept it on the walls. But what he'd done is um, print out these massive photos of Mogadishu pre and post war, side by side, like massive, massive <laughs> frames. And me and my brother would get these lectures every single day about exactly where he came from and exactly what happened and what happens to society and um, to families when war breaks out and like really specific, almost inappropriate details. And I think that's where my morbid fascination came from, but also this nostalgia and connection to home that I never experienced because I grew up in London. So I think he really rooted me in knowing that I was from somewhere else and that place didn't truly exist because you couldn't go there. And when you'd see it, you'd see it on the news. Um, or you'd see it in the advertisement about, you know, donate some money for starving children. And so 
that was the only examples that you had. So he started showing me photos of um, wedding photographs and VHS. And then so I started becoming really interested in the, the 70s Somalia and, and, and early 80s. But anyway, I digress. The poem about Grace Jones is my favorite poem in the book. But this is one of my favorite poems. And this is The Unbearable Weights of Staying. Um, oh, oh. Unbearable Weight of Staying. Yeah. I, I read it and I was like, what? Are we okay? Are we okay? No, no, no. The kids are, are not okay. okay. The kids are not okay. Okay, the kids are not okay. Unbearable Weight of Staying. I don't know when love became elusive. My mother's laughter in the dark room. What I know is that no one I knew had it. My father's arms around my mother's neck. A door halfway open. Fruits too ripe to eat. Yo. Somebody snap their fingers at home when you listen to this podcast. Um, <laughs> so I, I'm gonna have a little bit of a moment, and and I feel like a lot of a lot of the poems in this book are um, are coming full full circle um, and a return, but a a return but a leaving or something. And I say that because I think of um, the the poem that you wrote that was like. Sure, that's what I'm saying. Like the Tumblr girls know what I'm talking about. Um, you are you are a horse, you are a horse running alone. Um mm. and at the end you say you are terrifying and strange. I can't, I can't paraphrase this one because this poem is amazing, but it says you are a horse running alone and he tries to tame you, compares you to an impossible highway to a burning house, says you are blinding him that he could never leave you, forget you, wants anything but you. You dizzy him, you're unbearable. Every woman before or after you is doubt in his name. And at the end the last answer says you can't make homes out of human beings somebody should have already told you that and if he wants to leave then let him leave you are terrifying and strange and beautiful something not everyone knows how to love and and when I read the unbearable ways of staying um I almost thought of that woman and I almost thought of like I thought about the way in which you write about desire and you write about women who are constantly desired but not loved all the way through and what mm. it means to be a woman who exists in that chasm right between the desire and the love all the way through and what it means to stay in that space and so I wanted us to talk a little bit about why you write about those kind of women and why you write about desire in the way that you do that line about the elusiveness of love is a fear for so many of a particular kind of woman, right? So a woman who is too much, who is who is a lot, right? Because we always get referred to as being a lot. Um, like, oh, she's a lot. She's just too much. But there is there is a chasm and there's a kind of woman who exists in that chasm that she writes about. And I wanted us to speak a little bit about that. First of all, I deeply relate with the unhinged woman. I grew up raised by a lot of what I would describe as unhinged women. Whether it was they were unhinged because they were genuinely mentally ill or if it was just because they simply had like uh, dared to follow their dreams or they had some kind of style or maybe they went on dates occasionally it was like I just really was interested in uh, these really rich secret lives of women that were in many ways 
because they were so invisible, um, people also constantly overlooked them. And so if I think about why people care about people um, more when they're good looking is because we are able to assign humanity to those that we, well, um, we're raised by these ridiculous romantic comedies. And so if you don't see yourself in that, do you do you think that you are e- capable of being loved or if you are even deserving of it? What does it look like? I mean, I am now, how long have I been married for? Um, well, that sounds terrible. I can't remember. Maybe like seven years or something like that now, yeah. But <laughs> listen, for a long time, even the, um, for a long time, I still had my mother's voice in my head that was like, listen, like, you're just unruly. Like, you need to get, like, you're, you're disobedient and you talk too much and you, you think you're a lawyer and it's not going to turn out well for you, basically. But I just want everybody to know it does because you'll find somebody who will um, love you for who you are. But um, I think my first... A true introduction to like this idea of black love and black romance in a really beautiful way was the film Love Jones. And when, so when I first watched that, it really um, completely created for me what was possible. And the love, black love to me, then was like in completely perpetually linked to like jazz and to poetry. And so my idea of romanticism is completely wrapped up in that so coming from a refugee background and coming from muslim um family where you know uh sexuality and all of this is also very taboo and stigmatized what was never lost on me is how like the women around me were still so enchanting and seductive in natural way and so so in some ways i wanted to just highlight are natural um, as black women, our beauty, which is usually uh, like um, shown in either really crass ways or oversimplified ways. And I wanted to show that um, also, not, it's not that I even want to show these things. It's just that I'm interested in the complexity of what it means and this like virgin whore complex and just like what it means for a woman to want and need. And also though the difficult relationship with men and patriarchy and being raised by uh, women with internalized misogyny and then and all these boys that they raised and how to love them if to love them and then you know so but then you know it all this it's very complicated I kind of want uh, bless Grace Jones to be like our, our closing like as <laughs> we we're done and Grace has has been done but what I was really <laughs> interested in is, is wanting to know I what do you hope the book will do um, when, now that it's out in the world, what do you hope that it will do? Uh, because I, I, I think the book does so many things and often, um, you know, after writers have written, they're like, oh, now the book is in the world and it can do what it needs to do. But I wonder if you have any hopes for what the, 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 your first collection of full poetry will do. Yes, I, I have this really clear image of, when I was just 13 years old and I'd go to my local library and I would be looking for a book that 
made me feel like a real human being, like reflected me in, on any level. And every time I would find that, and I would over and over again, because there are so many amazing writers. But I remember the first time I came across um, Edwige Stantica, her collection of short stories. She's a Haitian writer called um, her Crick Crack. She wrote those collection of short stories when she was 22 years old. And I remember being drawn to the book simply because her brown face with um, um, braids up to her um, neck, I just just saw her like bright eyes and I just felt, oh my God, I need to read this. This is somebody that I feel like looks even remotely like me. And I read that book and it exploded my brain and it changed the trajectory of my life. What I hope for is that, um, you know, there are people that will find themselves um, drawn to this book and find themselves feeling less alone, maybe a little bit comforted, um, maybe feel a little bit more understood and perhaps feel inspired to follow their dreams because we come from similar backgrounds or from um, this uh, growing up from with this perspective that possibly the future is not that bright. I hope that it can make you feel like maybe you want to write a book and I'd love to read it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so, you know, I've been thinking a lot about um, how we write ourselves into being. And, uh, and I think that a lot of the work that your book does is, is an excavation, you know, so this, this book is, is, I'm, I'm, okay, so I'm interested in, in poetry as a means to uncover what has been forgotten, or what we don't think about. And I think so much of this book is, is that excavation, it's about your childhood. Um, and it's about like, what you need, it's about an, an act of remembering, I guess, this is what I'm trying to say. Mm. And I think there's something so deeply profound about excavating your childhood, right? Because it also means that there are things that you may have forgotten about as a way for your brain to to protect you that you then remember. And I want to know what is the self-care work that you do in doing this kind of work, right? So how do you, having excavated and found some, some really painful memories sometimes or some painful remembering, how do you then come back to take care of adult you in remembering childhood you? It's something that I have had to constantly do and will have to do for the rest of my life, which is, like, even just yesterday, I got really upset with myself for having a strong reaction. Like I get anxious very quickly. And um, when I get anxious, then I start telling myself like, oh my God, you're so pathetic for being anxious. And so I had to just stop myself and be like, oh. I was like, okay, I know it feels a little bit cheesy. Okay, but we're gonna have a little discussion with ourselves. I was like, would you say this to your baby self? No, because I would never speak to my children like that. Never, ever. I wouldn't speak to anybody like that. I, was, I only save it for myself. So I had to say, like, just come back to myself and be like, do I hate myself? No, I don't. So I need to speak to myself a little bit more gentle. And then I calm down and I listen to a little bit of music and I chilled out. And it was like nothing happened. Usually that could, like, really devolve into some bullshit. So speaking to that child self, which is really important. Um, I would recommend that for everybody because it will make you be kinder to yourself. And I think when you're kinder to yourself, you, there's more uh, possibility for you to actually change what it is that you want to change. 
I mean, that's deeply profound, right? Because I've been like on this quest of like, oh, I'm learning to be kinder to myself. Uh, I remember going to therapy and saying to my therapist, like, I'm here because I just want to give my child an opportunity to live, like to mm. actually live, right? And and part of that is like really reparenting myself and 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 knowing that like I'm not responsible for the things that happened to me when I was younger, but I know that they're impacting me now and in 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 a way to make future me happy, present me needs to do a lot of the work, right? So I, I, I was like nodding when you're saying that because I was like, yeah, you're right. Like I've never spoken to anyone the way that I speak to myself right and so yeah. I kind of need to remember like okay come on be more gentle and be more kinder to yourself um yeah. but I wanted to yeah. say thank you I think that this has been a really wonderful conversation but more importantly like I think that your work um I mean from Tumblr days because we are like we're, we're like those Tumblr girls uh has been really like holding us quite close um but I think this collection of poetry will do what exactly you wanted to do uh, I felt seen in ways that I, I, I and I haven't experienced statelessness in in that sense right but like uh being queer um you you kind of like are always an outsider right so you're 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 like grieving a childhood that you could have had if people just you know loved you for who you are so in in, in, in that instances like this this otherness this grief like allowed me to like sit with it in in in, in more ways so thank you so much for that um and I really hope that people pick up this book and when they do pick it up that they find that they sit with it in the way that uh you want them to sit with it so um really really thank you so much um for being in conversation with us but also for writing um this beautiful collection of poetry Thank you so much. Definitely. So thank you so much, um, Wilson. I mean, to echo what Letlokonola has said, to for me, I think the beautiful thing about your writing is how so many of us feel seen um, in the work that you do. And for people who look like myself in Letlokonola, there's something so profound about somebody thinking that you are so important that you need to be seen in their writing and you need to be seen and you need to be seen by the world. And it's not something that we get to experience often. And so it's not lost on us how important this work is. And so thank you so much. Um, the work is profound and we are so grateful that it's, that it's out in the world and we can't wait to see what it does for people who look, who look like us and who feel the way that we do. And so I think the best, we can only close this, this wonderful conversation um, with an ode to another to another black girl who's made us feel seen, who set the scene um, for what it means to just be yourself incredibly and loudly at a time when it must have been so incredibly difficult to be. And so there's no better way to close off than with um, Let's Grace Jones. Thank you. I just wanted to say thank you guys so much for making me feel so comfortable. Your questions so thoughtful and um, it was really meaningful. I really appreciate speaking to somebody um, who understands what it is that I'm writing about and who has had lived experience. Very meaningful. And um, thank you. Also, I feel very lucky to be able to see your cute faces. This is only, <laughs> only for me, only for me. Okay, so bless, bless Grace Jones. Oh. Bless Grace Jones, holy mother of those deemed intimidating, patron saint of the unapproachable, savior 
of those told to soften their expression. Our Lady of Uncomfortable Silences, Dame Grace Jones, your daughters damn their insomnia, tan in their dreamless sleep, a legion of women flinching at touch. Fortify them, monarch of the last word, darling of the dark, arched brow. We bless you, queen of the Katai. We lay our burdens at your feet, careful not to weigh you down. From you, we are learning to put ourselves first. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you, Chicken Natives. Please go out and get yourself a copy of this wonderful collection of poetry. Like, no, don't ask for a PDF. Like, really, like, go out and buy yourself <laughs> this wonderful collection of poetry. And uh, just, you know, walk into a store, your favorite bookstore, if they don't have, just be like, listen, I'm here for my girl, Wasan. And I really want to get a copy of this book because I've got other copies of the book, but I really want this one. So please, again, one last time for the people at the back, please go out and get Bless the Daughter Raised by a Voice in Her Head uh, by Wasan. And from the Cheeky Natives, we say, until next time, goodbye. Bye.